Well, we're continuing in our, our study, our look at who is a church member. Uh, and so if you, I think most of you have gotten a copy. We have a few left of this little book that was written by Tom Rayner, who was the, uh, he was the president of Lifeway um, for, for many years. He's no longer, but, but he wrote this, a very readable, helpful book that marks, walks through the marks of a church member. Uh, and so if you don't have one, we have them um, in the hallway. And so we are walking through week by week the chapter headings of, of this book. And again, to, just so, so that you're aware, the, the reason we're doing this is because we want, I want us to be, and, and I, I think I can speak for all of the members here, we want to be a healthy church. And that, that's, a, that's the right goal. We as Christians should, should want to see our local church healthy. And, and the way that we're pursuing health is through understanding what is membership, and then we'll look at what is leadership. Um, so, so we're still on the, the part of membership, and, and we have a healthy church when we have healthy church members. That, that's the, the main point that I've been making. And so while the first week we looked at um, a healthy church is made up of functioning members, last week we looked at a healthy church is made up of, of unifying members, or those who are committed to the unity of the church. This week we're, we're going to look at um, the, the selfless church member. We're going to make the argument, I'm going to make the argument that a healthy church is made up of selfless church members. And so, so the, the chapter title in this book is, I will, let, I will not let my church be about my preferences and desires. Okay, so, so that's, that, that's where I get the idea of a selfless church member. Um, another subtitle could be, I will not make the church about me. Or another subtitle, my frustrations with the church Leaders or members will not be based solely upon me getting my way. Or another subtitle, I will always remember the Lord's Prayer, which says, Thy will be done, not my will be done. And so, so the issue that we're going to be looking at is, is a selfish church member. That is not a healthy church member, someone who's selfish, someone who's, whose church life, whose church involvement is centered around me, what I like, what I want, what I get, me, me, me. That's not health. And so a, a healthy church and the entirety of a church's membership ought to be committed to God's will, to his purposes being done. That, that is what ought to drive. The church belongs to God, more specifically, to Christ Jesus himself. We are his body. He is our head, and he leads the way. He calls the shots. He is the only senior pastor that we ought to have. I mean, I want to keep my job, but you get my point. <laughs> he ought to be, if, if I'm not an under-shepherd or an under-pastor, if I'm not leading the way that Christ would have me lead, I don't belong here, because Christ is the leader, the head of this church, which means that when church membership becomes about me, when, when my involvement in the church is wrapped up in me and myself, whether I realize it or not, I am, I'm displacing Christ and putting myself where only he belongs. I'm placing myself in the only place that is reserved exclusively for Christ. And when I do that, that sets not only me up for failure, but it sets the church up for failure. And it, and it actually also displays an enormous amount of pride to think that I deserve to be calling the shots driving this ship. That's only Christ's spot. And today I want to highlight the, the danger of selfish or, or the danger of a self-centered church member. When you have a church member whose involvement and participation in the life of the church is characterized 
by selfishness. Now, I'm saying characterized. We, we all struggle with selfishness, but when it's characterized by selfishness, that is a major issue, major issue for the church and for the member himself or herself. And it's an issue because the very identity of every Christian is an identity that is marked by dying to self. So the Christian identity is marked by dying to self. It's, a, it's, a, it's an identity that's characterized by service. It's an identity that, that's other-focused. So, so what I'm going to say is that being a Christian means I'm concerned for other people above myself. Right? That, that's part of what it means simply to be a Christian. And so when we have a church member who's characterized by selfishness, a church member who makes the church all about himself or herself, that person might not even be a Christian. So, so if I'm a Christian, my outlook is others-focused, which, which means that if there's a member who is only self-focused, the issue might not just be I'm an unhealthy church member, the issue may actually be I'm not even a Christian because the Christian identity is wrapped up in serving others. But instead of starting with, with that issue, that is a major issue, we'll get to that, but instead of starting with that, I want to start more positively. So our outline, I'm going to lay the example of Christian selflessness, the, the example that, that's been set for all Christians, and then I, I want to show the exhortation of selflessness, so the Christian exhortation um, to, to be selfless. And then lastly, we'll look at the problem or the issue of Christian selflessness. Um, but, but as we start, I am, I'm going to pray for us before we work through kind of this, this outline. So let's pray together. Let's ask God to help us. Now, Father, I pray for this time. I pray for um, these words. I pray for this message, Lord. Would you convict me? Would you convict us as members here? Uh, how we might serve others. Lord, we, our desire is to honor you. Our desire is to, to serve others. Um, and so we pray you would grow that desire, show us areas where, we, where we're not serving, where we are being selfish, uh, and give us grace to change. And so I pray that this church, that, that every member, every body part would be a body part that is committed to the good of others more than to the good of itself. Uh, so help us do that. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, so we're going we're gonna to run through these first two, and then we'll get to kind of the more practical um, application there at the end. So first, the example of Christian selflessness. And so there's lots of examples uh, that we could turn to, lots of examples of, of Christian selflessness, examples of individuals who, who love God and who give of themselves for the good of others. So we could go to Abraham, uh, if he thinks, remember specifically his his relationship with his nephew Lot. And he says, hey, Lot, you choose what land you want. And, and Lot takes the best of the land, the, the fruitful land, and, and Abraham's stuck with, with the barren land. Right? So, so Abraham considers Lot and says, you do what you want, knowing that God had promised something to him. And, and he, he considers Lot as more significant than themselves and gives him first choice. Or Moses. Remember Moses, though he was an Egyptian, he chose to be identified with the Israelites. Right, so, so this is what, what Hebrews 11 will pick up, that, that Moses, he forsook the, the wealth and the riches of Egypt so that he might be identified with the outcast and lead the Israelites. That, that's, that's selfless of Moses. Or, or another great example would be Jonathan. Remember Jonathan, the, the son of, of Saul, who, who was next in line to the throne, who had a right to the throne, yet he recognized that God had called David. And so Jonathan does not see David as an, as an opponent and as an adversary, but instead he says, I'm going to help you. I'm on your side. And, and he was a great friend to David, and, and he, he put aside his own agenda, his own desire to be king, and said, I'm going to let David do it. Or in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul himself, he, he was a servant to all. 
Right? So there's passage after passage of him giving up his rights, of him pouring himself out. He served, he was imprisoned, he was beaten, he suffered greatly for the sake of the gospel. He knew that, that his task was to, to take the gospel to the, to the places where, where it was not yet. And ultimately, he wanted to get to Rome. That was his life goal. And he suffers greatly because of it. And that, that's because he cares more about the people that haven't heard the gospel than about his own safety. So that's selflessness. And there are many more. These, these are just a few examples. But, but the, these examples abound because the reality is when God's spirit is present in the life of God's people... The result is selflessness. That's what happens when God's spirit indwells you. Your perspective is changed. When God gets a hold of you, when you're changed, when you're converted, when God's spirit indwells you, your eyes are open to the godness of God. Right? Your eyes are opened in ways that it was never, they were never opened before. Your eyes are open to recognizing that this is God's world. And that, that everything exists for him and by him and through him and everything. But, but you say, I'm just a, a small piece in this huge world that belongs to God. I'm one small. And, and I recognize that when I'm filled with his spirit, when, when I'm one of his children, I understand that his will is good for everyone. And that's what I want for everyone. It's not just good for me or good for them. It's not like, well, well God's will is good for me, but not good for them. God's will is good for everyone. And so, so when you become a follower of Jesus, when you become a Christian, your genuine desire is for his will to be done, which means that your will must become secondary, that, that there's a, a priority given to God's will. So if I want something, if God says no, I, I submit my will to his and say his will be done. That's, that's the basics of the Christian life. That's what it means to, to be selfless. I mean, selflessness, humility, the, these are all fruits of the Spirit. And so every Christian, when he or she recognizes God's will for the life or God's will for the church, will eventually gladly submit to it. And so when I say we want to follow God's will for this church, I, I don't envision you being dragged, kicking and screaming, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it. No, God's Spirit guides God's church to, to carry out and perform God's will, and he does so in a way that there's unity and there's willingness eventually And so even though we have all these examples, and hopefully many of you are examples of what selflessness looks like, there's one example that, that, that exceeds all others. There's, there's one life that exemplified selflessness in a way that no other could ever from start to finish. And this example of selflessness is actually the example that enables every other act of selflessness. And that example, obviously, hopefully you know what I'm talking about, is the example of Christ himself. So Jesus himself sets the example. And so I want, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 10. I'm going to read a few var verses from Mark chapter 10 that, that, are, that lay out this example of selflessness. So Mark chapter 10. I'm just going to read verses 42 through 45. But kind of to set the stage, if, if, if you're not familiar with this, this context there, Jesus and his disciples are on their way, they're, they're traveling. They'd just seen, I think that the disciples had, had failed to, to cast out some demons. Um, but, but so they're, they're walking, and, and he has two of his disciples come to him, James and John. So if you think about Jesus' disciples, there's this inner circle. So if you read the Gospels, there's always three of them that are right there. They're mentioned more than anyone else. So it's, Matthew, it's, it's Peter, James, and John. That's the inner circle. 
And so two of them, who actually happen to be brothers, James and John, come up to Jesus, right? The other 10 don't know about it. They have this secret meeting with Jesus, and they say, hey, hey, Jesus, um, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, again, I, I, I think I've said this before, but a lesson of application, don't agree to something until you know what it is. So they, they're trying to get Jesus to agree before even they even tell him what he's doing, or before they, he knows what they're asking. And he says, what, what do you want? And so they say, we, we want the seat of power and authority. Grant for us to sit at your right hand and at your left hand in glory. So they want this authority. They want this power. Right? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You, you can't do, this is not mine to grant. You're not going to be able to do this. Then the other 10, so the other 10 disciples find out about it and they're, they're upset. Like, how dare these two try and get an inroad to the, to the seats of glory, the seats of power? We want them too, right? That's the Im- Im- implication there. But Jesus, this is the context here in, in verse 42 through 45 of Mark 10. So verse 42, Jesus called them to him and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever, must, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so here's Jesus laying out his, his, life, his life goal, his life purpose. He says, I came to serve. That, that's the whole reason that, that I took on flesh, that I was born in Bethlehem. My, my entire life, Jesus says is a a mission that is only ever selfless. It's only ever others-focused. I came to give my life for the good of others, to serve others. And so that's the example of Jesus himself. He took on flesh, right? This, this, This was a demotion. Heaven to earth is a demotion, Right? If you don't know that, that's true. So, so when, you, when you leave earth and, and you go to heaven, that's a promotion. That's good news. Jesus steps out of heaven, takes on flesh, identifies with humanity. He becomes an actual man. And he experiences suffering and sorrow and all the difficulties of life, an aching body even. He does so because he loves you. And because he loves me, he does it to serve you and to serve me. Because if he doesn't do that, we are not saved. And so his entire life is an act of selflessness. He doesn't care about himself. He cares about you and me and others. He cares about his father. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's he's anxious about what's coming. He says, not my will but yours, but if there's another way, let let it be another way. I don't want to die. Nevertheless, not my will but yours. And so Jesus considers others. He considers the will of his father, and he lives a selfless life life at great cost to himself. And so the life of Christ is a perfect example of selflessness that ought to mark every church member. And as I said, this act of service, his acceptance of his Father's will, his carrying out of the plan, is the basis of our salvation. Do you see verse 45? He gave his life as a ransom for many, which means the death of Christ is the only foundation of your, for your salvation. His life is the only ransom that can pay for your life. Jesus is the only one. He laid down his life that you and I might live. 
And not only that we might live, so Jesus doesn't lay down his life so that you can just live for yourself. No, he lays down your life and gives you his spirit so that you might live for others. And so this selflessness is tied up in your salvation. But before we talk more about that, I just, I wonder if anyone here, instead of wondering how you can live selflessly, I wonder if instead you ought to consider what it means to turn from the life centered upon your will and to put your faith in Jesus. I wonder if there's anyone here that needs to hear that this morning. You were created not to live for yourself. And some of you here, I know you're living for yourself. And it's a, it's a dead end road. And so if you hear, how can I live selflessly? If you don't get this right, you'll never live selflessly. You need God's power to live selflessly. And you get his power by turning from self and trusting in Jesus. By the, the, the simple illustration of taking yourself, stepping down from the throne and saying, I can't do this. I don't know what I need. I don't know what's best. I cannot control my life. But there's one who will and can. And you say, I want Jesus. I want you to be Lord. I want to follow your will. And that's, the first, that, that's what it means to become a Christian. You turn from self and trust in Jesus. That, that's, that's the basic message of Christianity. And so some of you here just need to hear that. Stop trying to do it on your own. You're, you're going to keep screwing it up. You are. This room is filled with people who will tell you that they screwed it up. And so I would call you to put your faith in Christ. Pursue a life of following his will. It may be hard. It may be difficult. But it's always best for you to follow Christ. And so living a selfless life and following Christ's example requires first a turning from self and a turning to him. That, that's what it means to be, to be saved. You, you put your faith in Jesus, which means you're not trusting in yourself. And so if you're here this morning, I'd love to talk with you about that, what it means to become a Christian. Maybe you've spent your whole life growing up in the church and, and you don't know if you're saved or not. I'd love to talk with you. You can know if you're a Christian or not. It's not based on how you feel or what you know or what you do. It's based on Christ. And I'd love to point you to him. So, so come see me after the service. I, I'd love to talk with you about the, the glories of the salvation that Jesus has, has purchased for, for you and for me. And so that's the example of, of, of selflessness. It's the example of Christ and all his followers. But then second, related, we have the call of selflessness. Because as Christians, it's not just how we ought to live. As Selfless isn't just how we ought to live. It's how we're actually called and commanded to live. And so I want you to go to Philippians 2. This is the next passage I want us to look at, Philippians 2, a well-known passage. But, but here, the Apostle Paul calls you and calls me and calls all Christians to a, a selfless life. And in this passage, I'm, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 here in a second, but in this passage you'll notice that he begins with the call to selflessness, but then, beginning in verse 5, he transitions to the example of selflessness, and the example he turns to is that of Christ. And so it's a similar uh, layout to what we've just done. Right? This is why any discussion of Christian selflessness or Christian service must be viewed in light of what Christ has done. Right? I can't be selfless if I don't understand and believe that Jesus gave his life for me, and that was an act of selflessness. And so, and so follow, follow along with me as I read Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 11, but, but just listen to the call of selflessness. Paul writes, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, 
Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Here's the call. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to the point of death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And, and so this, this is a, a, a powerful passage, but did you notice the call there at the beginning? And we teach our kids this. This is a good thing. If you have grandkids that you, that you babysit or great-grandkids, have them memorize this, the call. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from rivalry, another translation says. But, but the call is don't act for your own benefit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In other words, nothing that you do ought to be done primarily for selfish reasons. Nothing that you do as a Christian ought to be done primarily for selfish reasons. The reality is, if you're a Christian, you've been made new. There's a new you who considers others more than yourself. And the old you has been crucified. He or she is no longer on the throne. Instead, Christ is on the throne, and your love for him and your, your following of him is expressed in your sacrificial love of others, your consideration of others. The call is to count others more significant than yourself, to look to the interests of others. I'll say more about this in, in, a, in a little bit, but someone this morning said, hey, well, does that mean that, that I can't sit where I want to in the sanctuary? Of course that doesn't mean that. You, you can do what you want, but the issue is when that want or desire or preference is challenged, how do you respond? Are you, are you considering others? Oh, have that. I'm so glad you're here. Please have this seat. Or, right, how's the old self respond? I don't see your name on it. I'm going to be here. This is my seat, right? So that's the old self. So I'm not saying you can't do what you want. The point is, is your disposition when it comes to interacting with others, especially in the church context, is your impulse, your default, I want you to get what you want. I want to serve you. I want to suffer, not you. If there's a decision that has to be made, if there's something that has to be done, I want to be the one to bear the weight of it, right? That's the Christian default. That's what Jesus did. And so this is the mindset that ought to shape our lives as church members. We ought to be others-focused church members. If our gaze is only ever personal, we're missing the point of church life. We're missing opportunities to serve others. And that's a problem because it misses the point of being a Christian, so let's look lastly at the problem of selfishness. So, so this, is, this is where I want us to, to change. I want to change, and I want you to change. I want us to address selfishness as it comes up in our everyday life. Now, I debated sharing this specific list, but I'm going to because I think it helps to paint a picture 
that, that we just need to be aware of. And so in, in this book, in chapter 3, when he talks about, I won't let the church be about me and my preferences, he talks about this research that he took part in. And, and he says that in this research, so when you're the head of Lifeway, you, you can do all kinds of studies, and, and Tom Rainer did all kinds of studies. But he talks about one specific, where they were studying the characteristics of churches that were largely self-serving. And so what are characteristics of, of self-serving or inward-focused churches? And in chapter 3, he mentions 10 characteristics or, or 10 things that, that, that set the pattern of an inwardly-focused church. And so I'm just going to read through these 10 characteristics. Now, I don't think that we're all of them, but I think we ought to hear them aware that we're part of some of them, that we're some part of all of them. So, so just here, I, I, and I'll say more about this, but so just here, I think this is helpful. So he says the first characteristic is worship wars. He says that in these churches, music type or instrumentation are untouchable, meaning if, if, if something changes that I don't like, right, that, that's no good, right? So, so that cannot change, specifically when it comes to worship wars. A second mark would be prolonged minutiae meetings, which means there are many meetings with little or inconsequential purpose. He says there's all kinds of meetings, lots of them, but they're all about really insignificant things, things that don't really matter. Meanwhile, he says, the great commission and the great commandment, which is to make disciples and love others, are rarely the topic of meetings. And so you see that that's the other, that's another one. Number three, facility focus. He says, in these churches, the church facilities develop an iconic status. And so protection and preservation of buildings, rooms, and furniture is one of the highest priorities of the church. So he wouldn't say that they aren't a priority. He's saying in these churches, they're the highest priority. So they, they, they are above and beyond the ministry of the church. Number four, he says, they're program-driven. Now, every church is going to have programs. And, and again, he, he goes into more detail with these, but he says that programs had ceased to be a means to an end. So programs of the church ought to meet the needs of the ministry of the church. They ought to lead to the church ministering. That's, that's what programs should be. But he's saying in these churches, the programs were just there because they were there. They were the end themselves. So we do this just because this is what we've always done, what we want to do. It doesn't matter what, what it's leading us to. It just matters that we do them. Number five, inwardly focused budget. So in the, the budgets of these churches, the priorities were primarily given to the needs and the comforts of the members. Number six, inordinate, inordinate demands for pastoral care. So he says in these churches, there's often an unreasonable expectation placed on the pastors. I don't think that's this church, but, but again, I'm just I'm laying out these, these, these characteristics. Number seven, he says, attitudes of entitlement where everything's centered around the wants and desires of the members. Entitled, I, I get what I want. Again, this is the country club member attitude that leads to an attitude of, of entitlement. Number eight, greater concerns about change than the gospel. More, more concerned about, about something changing than about the gospel going forth. So, so any noticeable change would evoke anger or ire of the members. How dare that be changed? But he also notes that this passion, this concern is not evident when it comes to the ministry of the church. So there's passions about this changed, and it should not have, instead of how are we going to reach our neighbors with the gospel. Right? So there's a, there's a disordinate emotional engagement with, with these issues as opposed to these. Number nine, anger and hostility. He says in these churches, members are consistently angry 
regularly expressing hostility towards church staff and other members, just this, this, this culture of anger and hostility. And then number 10, evangelistic apathy. It says, in these churches, members show little or no concern for sharing the gospel with others. Now again, I, I don't think we are as bad as we could be in all of these. Right? So, so I'm not saying, hey, look, this is us. I don't think this is us. But, but I think it's helpful for us to put these in front of us and say, okay, let's evaluate ourselves in light of these. Because I do see traces of, of many of these in our church. I see, I, I see our church with some of these problems, but I see them not as, not as your problem. And so I'm not up here saying, hey, you guys are the problem. Right? Some pastors do that. That's not what I'm doing. Please don't hear me say that. I recognize them as an us problem. This is our problem. It's all of us. We're all here, and, and we have room to grow. And so I want us to grow. I want to lead us to grow. And the major way for us to grow to address all of these issues, because the, the pattern that's evident from every number on that list is selfishness. And so, so every issue there is because the members care more about themselves than others. And so for us to grow, the way that I see us growing, the way I see me leading us to grow, is to grow in selflessness. Because I think if all of us grow in considering others, the needs and wants of others as more significant than ourselves, the natural overflow will be church health. It'll naturally lead to a, a more unified functioning body. And so I, in this final section, I want to think very specifically about church life here. Now, I tried to make it really clear and neat, uh, these applications, but it's really not. So don't, don't get caught up in, in kind of these labels and just, just hear what I'm saying. And so big picture, I, I want to look at selflessness, how we can grow on the micro view, and then how we can grow on the macro view. Okay, so, so micro view, selflessness at Fox Hill Road Baptist Church. So, so I want us to think specifically here as we, as we, as we look at, at the practical aspect of this. I want us to think about our involvement in this church. So think about your involvement here. And I want you to think about your involvement in terms of others-focused versus self-focused. In other words, think about the role that you play here in this church. Whatever it is, every one of you, if you're a member here, you have, you're playing a role. Even if the role you feel like is nothing, you're still playing a role of nothing. So think about your role. Think about the things that you do. And ask yourself, what is my motivation for doing these things? What is motivating me to fulfill the role that I'm doing? What's my motivation? Why do I do what I do for Fox Hill Road Baptist Church? I want you to think about this because, here, here's the reality, just because you do stuff, just because you serve in various ways, or just because you're involved in certain things, doesn't mean that your motivation is good. And so I don't want you to say, well, I do stuff. I serve. And say, I'm off the hook because just because you serve doesn't mean you're off the hook. You could serve every week in Awana. Every week you could be here at setup and leave the last one out and you could do it every single week from a self-righteous or proud heart that is only concerned with self. You could attend every single members meeting Everyone, even the ones right after church that, that run into lunch, you could attend everyone, but do so just so that you could ensure that your way is what's followed. You could be at church every week, but do so out of impure motives. 
God, God will bless me if I go this week. Right? So, so all of these things. I want you to ask yourself, why do I serve? Why do I do what I do? Why do I function the way I do? Just because you do things doesn't mean that your heart is right. So I want you to think about why you do what you do in the life of this church and examine the heart behind that. And the heart attitude that, that, that you should be bending towards or moving for or operating out of is a heart of, I want to serve the body. I want to love others. And by me doing this, I am loving my brothers and sisters. I'm serving them. And, and if you can't get there, you should reevaluate how you're serving. And so that's one hand. I want you to think about why you do what you do. But on the other end of the spectrum... Some of you here don't do much. I mean, that's just, that's just the way it is. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm trying not to be mean. But your church life consists of very little. And so just like I want some of you to consider your motives for doing, I think it would be beneficial for some of you to consider your motives for not doing. Now, now I, just to be clear, and I, I, always, I always want to make this clear, I don't want all of you to walk out of here thinking the pastor just wants me to do. That's not what I'm saying. Right? But I want you to examine yourself. I recognize that some of you have health limitations. I get that. So don't, don't be guilty. Right? Don't, don't let your conscience prick you where you should not be pricked. If, if your health does not enable you to do, consider other ways that you can serve without physical. Right? So I want you to, to recognize service in this church is not only physical, hands-on stuff. But consider your motives for not doing. So in other words, why don't you come to fellowship dinners? Why don't you come to the adult study that meets in here on Wednesday nights? Why don't you come to Sunday school? Why don't you volunteer in the nursery? Why are you only at church once a month or twice? Why don't you do these things? I, I heard a statistic this, this past week that the average church member now attends church once a month. That's the average now. Did you know that? I know some of you, right, you're like me, you grew up, we were there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and it was four times a month, no excuses. Right? Well, the culture we're living in, one time a month is the average. And that, that's, that's baffling. So why do you only come once a month? And so ask yourself, I want you to ask yourself, why don't you involve yourself in the life of this church? Just, just let, that, let that set on you. Why don't you? I mean, we have a pretty regular schedule. We do things pretty regularly. Why don't you do, why aren't you here when the body gathers? Now, obviously, as I, as I just mentioned, there are some legitimate reasons, and I don't want to come across as guilting you into doing stuff. I'd rather you stay home than be guilted and say, well, I better make the preacher happy. And I don't want that. That, that goes back to C, C point A, motivation. I'd rather you stay home. But I want you to ask yourself. I'm not trying to guilt you, and there are legitimate reasons, but here's what I want to say. There's a difference between a legitimate reason and a mere inconvenience. So, so not coming on Wednesday nights because you're unable to drive in the dark is legitimate. Well, not showing up to church on a regular basis because you're busy, that's not legitimate. Who's not busy? We're all busy. We all are. I know many of you are retired and you stay busy. And so I just want to say that serving the church 
is always going to involve inconvenience. It always is going to. And so if you're waiting till you, till, till you don't, till nothing is going to obstruct it, you, you're going to be waiting a long time. And so, so just ask that question. Why am I doing what I'm doing and why am I not doing? So that's, that's the micro. But then I want us to, to close by looking at the macro view, the big picture. And so this is just me as I'm thinking through our church. This is, just, this is just me kind of giving you a view into my mind. So our church is at a crucial time in its life. I mean, every time is crucial, I get that. But, but I, I really believe that right now is a crucial time because here's why. In five to 10 years, this church is not gonna look the same. So, so imagine 2030, Jesus hasn't come back. We're still here. This church is going to look much different, more so than, than just the regular rotation of people. This church in five to 10 years, a majority of our faithful, committed, financially supporting members are not going to be here in five to 10 years. I mean, that, that, I am scared to death of that, right? Because I love those people. I love you. And so that scares me to think in five to 10 years, majority of our, of our core committed people are not going to be here. Now, I can praise God because you'll be with him. Right, so that, that will be good news for you. Not good news for us, but good news for you. But, but, but in five to 10 years, that's going to happen. And so now is a crucial time because I know if nothing changes in five to 10 years, we're not gonna be able to sustain the life of this church. We just can't. And so we have, as a church, decisions to make. Right? We have trajectories to set. How are we going to move forward? How are we gonna survive? How are we going to maintain a gospel ministry at 335 Fox Hill Road? What priorities are we going to pursue? Now, I don't know what they are. And maybe you're waiting like, oh, here's a big announcement. I don't know what they are. <laughs> so, so I don't know the specifics, but I do know that now, like over these months and years, the immediate months and years, if our members are not committed to selflessness, if we aren't committed to saying, okay, what would God have us do as a church? How can we as a church move forward together? If we are not all in with that mindset, we're not going to make it. And I'm going to be looking for another job in 10 years. So, so I just want you to hear the, mo the most basic application of this message to you and to me as members of this church is just to, to commit yourself regularly to examine why you're doing what you're doing. Are you serving others? Are you pouring out your life for the sake of others? When you're frustrated or upset or tempted to lose hope, examine yourself and ask, what's God's will for this church? What would he have us do? We all need to be committed to asking this question, what is God's will for this church? How can we ensure that a faithful gospel witness is maintained here when we're not here? So for some of you, it's thinking, how can I ensure that my great-grandkids have a place to come to church? We all need to be committed to asking this question. What is God's will for this church? And, and so you ought to know that as the pastor who's tasked with leading this church, my aim is always to help this church thrive. That, that's, my, that's my default. What does God want for this church? And so over these past three years, when difficult decisions have had to be made, 
my aim has always been, what's the best for this church? And I can tell you in good conscience, that's how I have moved forward in decisions, hard decisions. I've said, what's the best for this church? What's God's will for this church? So that, that's been how I've operated in the past, and that's my aim in the future. Whatever lies ahead, my aim will always be the good of this church. I cannot, I must not lead for my own sake. That is not godly leadership. That is Gentiles lording it over them. I'm here to serve. And so if that's my aim, and I pray that's your aim, if every member here has that aim, even in the midst of disagreement, we can move forward together. So that's the point. I'm not, I'm not saying if, if everyone is considering others, there's going to be no disagreements. There's still going to be disagreements. That, that's normal. In a fallen world, there's going to be disagreements with church stuff. But if my default disposition is to consider others and to love others and to serve others and to give up my own rights for their good, we can move forward unified. We can move forward trusting God to lead us and to guide us. Because at the end of the day, we have all, as God's people, received the same spirit. And I'm convinced that he will lead us forward together in unity by his spirit. God's spirit will not lead in division. There's one spirit. And so as we, as receivers of his spirit, as those who are called to keep in step with the spirit, as we aim to, to consider others, as we aim to be selfless members, God will lead us and he will take care of his church. Right? So as a pastor, that's my hope. This is not my church. Right? I'm not responsible for, for preventing hell from prevailing against this church. I can't do that. But the one who can will. Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And so we have great hope as we are, commit ourselves to God's will, as we commit ourselves to serving others regardless of cost or inconvenience, as we commit ourselves to following the example of Christ, I think he'll be honored by the life of this church. May God help us to do that. Let's pray as we close.